scripture today is found in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 4a. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. Our next scripture is from the book of Romans, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> what then will I say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. So this is uh, week two of boot camp of the soul. This is our Lenten series. We started it last week. That was week one. Now we're in week two. And uh, if you remember last week, uh, if you were here or if you caught it online later, uh, the first key skill that we learned last week in boot camp of the soul was confession. And Psalm 32 shows us how confession leads to incredible joy, just as a hen that's released from a battery farm knows the joy that a farmyard chicken who has always been free will never know. So there is the joy in the freedom of forgiveness, that uh, there is joy after sin. This morning we're moving in our lectionary readings to Genesis chapter 12 uh, verses 1 through 4 for, for week 2. And the skill that we're going to learn this morning, and if you're a note writer then this is what to write, is we're learning how to reset our lives. Reset our lives. After church on a Sunday morning, after you've all gone and Stacy has finally wrapped up all what she's done and Wendy's at home making lunch and I'm waiting for the call to say lunch is ready so I can go. But what I'm doing here when there's no one else around um, is I'm at the back computer and I'm editing the Sunday service, I'm rendering it and I'm uploading it to YouTube. And sometimes what happens, because the video files that we use are so large, which are all recorded on that little camera there. Um, sometimes uh, I forget how large these files are and, uh, and I forget the burden that editing these files can put on the computer and so sometimes I, while I'm waiting for this thing to render, I open up another tab or another app and I'm working on something else and then all of a sudden the computer freezes and I can't alt tab to anything i can't open task manager nothing the whole computer is stuck still and i don't know how long it'll take so 
usually what I do if there's no response after a minute or two, because I'm not that patient, I want to get moving, I want to get it done, I want to get home and eat some food. Uh, so if there's no response after a minute or two, um, I have to do this painful task of long pressing uh, the power button on the computer until the entire computer just zip shuts down and there's nothing on at all. And then after that happens, I then press the power button again, hoping that uh, my work has been saved. In other words, I reset the computer in order to carry on. There is no carrying on if I don't reset the computer. And that's kind of where Abraham finds himself in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. It says, the Lord said to Abraham, and if you want to read along, then there are Bibles in the pew in front of you. Um, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 says, the Lord said to Abraham, go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. Here, what God's doing is he's giving Abraham the chance to press the reset button on his life. He's, it's, 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 it's Abraham's opportunity to reset forwards. The command here is simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. God says, go. He says, go. Two letters, go. And if we break down the go, we then see that God is actually narrowing down what he's asking of Abraham or of Abraham. And we see this in this verse. First, he says, go out from your land, which is broad. Then he says, go out from your relatives, which is a bit narrower. And then he says, go out from your father's house, which is much more specific. So the go that God gives Abraham is very specific. On the other hand, what God is calling Abraham to is much more vague. He says, to the land that I will show you. He says, go from your land, your relatives, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. Now, this isn't where Abraham's story starts, uh, Genesis 12 verse 1. Abraham's story actually starts a few verses earlier at the end of Genesis chapter 11 verse 31, which says this. It says, Terah took his son Abraham, his grandson Lot, Haran's son, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abraham's wife, and they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and then he died in Haran. So, so Terah is the father of Abraham. He's Abraham's dad. And we know nothing about why Terah did what he did. We don't know whether God called him. We don't know whether, like Joni Mitchell said, that he felt the urge for going. We don't know whether there was a career opportunity. What, what we do know is that Terah's intention was to travel from Ur over to the land of Canaan. But for whatever reason, he and his family, including his three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and uh, Abram's wife, Sarai, they settle in Haran, which is on the way to Canaan. Now, there's one commentator who says this, the whole family moves from Ur, an important settlement of culture in southern Iraq, to Haran in eastern Syria. So if you know the map of the world, then he moved from southern Iraq to eastern Syria, and there Terah died at the age of 205, which made Abram 135. Abram must have left his father Terah in Haran 60 years before he died. 
And so in the life of Abraham, we start to see a pattern. Just as Terah left Ur with his extended family, including his son Abraham, and settles in Haran, so, Haran, uh, so Abraham leaves Haran with his extended family, including his nephew Lot, and he goes to settle in a land that God will show him that we know ultimately turns out to be Canaan. So just like father, like son, we start to see a pattern. And I find it interesting that Abraham's father, Terah, had the intention of settling in Canaan all along, but instead settled for Haran. However, when Abraham hears Yahweh's call to go, he goes to this undefined land that actually ends up being the land that his dad set out to go to much earlier. In other words, there's this sense that Abraham is completing his father's unfinished business. Abraham actually did what Terah set out to do. Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize this or over-apply this point, but it does make me wonder whether many of the, of, of the achievements which we achieve in our generation, so just think of your generation, think of the achievements that you've achieved, how many of them are actually based on the actions of your forebears on generations past, in a sense that we're standing on the shoulders of giants. And so Abraham takes the baton from his father and he finishes the race but he's only finishing the race because his dad got him halfway there to start with and so i wonder for you who is a terror in your life not a terror but a terror i know when we say it in the uk it's the same which is why i have to canadianify ter terror you know we say terror and terror so uh, it's even more confusing if i was in wales right now uh, but but who is a terror in your life Someone who got you well on the way to where you ended up. There's this uh, song I love by a singer that I love called Sleeping at Last. And, uh, this, and this guy, Ryan, who's the, the sum total of the band, uh, he sings this song um, which is known as Daughter. And in this song, he writes these words. And, you know, for me as a father of three daughters it's, it's 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 particularly poignant ryan sings this he says you're ready born ready and all you gotta do is put one foot in front of you our ceiling is your floor and all you gotta do is put one foot in front of you if only you knew our ceiling is your floor our ceiling is your floor Whose ceiling is your floor? This is a powerful image of parenthood. I can reach this far, but in reaching this far, I can create a floor. I can create a foundation for my children to reach even further, to succeed, perhaps even to complete what I set out to do but was unable to do. Now, I don't think this necessarily signifies failure on Terra's part. Instead, I think that, this, that what we're seeing here is a different way to succeed, uh, something that um, is really powerful. We're seeing a multi-generational way to succeed. And here we, we live in a country which is a country of, of, of foreigners moving in. It's a country of immigrants. And this country is replete with stories of grandparents and parents who sacrificed and who paved the way for their children to have opportunities that they may never have, whose ceiling became the floor of the next generation, just like Terah did for Abraham. 
And so I think the first step in resetting our lives forward, in resetting forward, is to acknowledge the previous generation. So point one, to reset forward, acknowledge the previous generation. So Abraham's in Haran, somewhere in between uh, Ur and Canaan, and it's home. And then Yahweh shows up and he tells Abraham to go. He's calling Abraham and Sarai to start again. He's calling Abraham to reset forwards. He says, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. He says, go from your land. And he says, go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. Now, we know that Abraham eventually ends up in the land of Canaan, in the promised land. But Abraham doesn't know that yet. The uh, Archaeological Study Bible tells us that at a normal caravan pace of 20 miles or 32 kilometers per day, the trip from Haran to Canaan, about 500 miles, 800 kilometers, would have taken the better part of a month. That's how long it would have taken. Now, you might think, well, I could have made that journey faster, but we have to remember that Abraham is bringing his extended family. And as the saying goes, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, then, you know, go together. And that's what happens. And one of the people that goes along with Abraham on this month-long journey is Abraham's nephew, Lot. Because as we know, Abraham and Sarai are as yet childless. This is one of the griefs that they are carrying through life. And verse 4 of Abraham tw- of uh, Genesis 12 says this, So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions he had accumulated, and, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. I assume that's some kind of slavery or servants. You know, people don't tend to accumulate people, but uh, it was a different uh, time in, you know, in those days. So the second part of resetting forwards is to bring the next generation with you. So you acknowledge the previous generation, and then you bring the next generation with you, okay? We see that, that uh, Abraham's father, Terah, he brought Abraham from Ur to Haran, and now Abraham is bringing Lot from Haran to the land that the Lord will show him. And when Abram resets his life, we find out that he's about 75 years old. He's no spring chicken. And uh, I, I really can think of nothing more meaningful in life than resetting forwards by acknowledging the previous generation and by bringing the next generation along with us. In fact, I think maybe this is something that our society is losing, the, you know, the link or the connection between the generations. You know, do you think maybe that it could have happened that Abraham was raised around the campfire in the tents with the story of, of his father leaving Ur? Maybe he heard the story of his father's plan to uh, leave Ur and to go to Canaan, but ending up settling in Haran. You know, do you think maybe this is why when God called Abraham to go out of the blue, out of nowhere, that it wasn't such an outlandish request because Abraham had heard the stories from his father. And this is why we need to tell stories. We need to tell stories to the next generation because stories is what connects our generations 
You know, for me, I need to tell stories to my kids of the faithfulness of Nana and Papa in Wales. They've not lived a perfect life. No one has. But they did a lot right. They took me to missionary prayer meetings when I was a kid. They housed troubled youths who were looking for a place to stay. They looked out for a single mother, family, friend who, who had a disabled child. They served our local church. They, they would go to international students' meetings when I was a kid. And we would go along with them every single time. You know, they took us to the house of an elderly woman and her brother who had a glass eye. I remember that. <laughs> and when I went into that house... It smelled funny, and I can remember that. You know, but they did it to show Christ's love. You know, they took us to an outreach Sunday school in a tough, rough part of town where the kids weren't, prevent, weren't presentable and they weren't well-behaved, but they knew that they were loved. And the list goes on and on and on. And I think in my own mind and I feel in my own heart that if they hadn't modeled a life of selflessness and sacrifice and outreach and care, if they didn't constantly break down these walls, either racial or socioeconomic or religious, that can so often split us apart, would I be where I am today? You see, they took me along with them. They took me along with them. And so I think because of this, when I was at college and university and I was actively resisting my Christian upbringing and I was saying, I've got to find out my, my own identity apart from mum and dad and church. In the midst of that, in the midst of that searching, that struggle, that hardship, I had hardwired into me a Christ-centered care for those who weren't like me. And so even as I tested those boundaries, age 17, I also did street outreach with Teen Challenge in Swansea. And at university, while I was, while I was getting drunk and I was questioning my sexuality, I was dreaming of running away, I was also a volunteer with The Underground, a hangout place for street teens where they could come and be real and be welcomed in the basement of a church where the leader, a guy called Dai Hanke, it's a great Welsh name, <laughs> where he would spin records, he would mix and he would scratch, and we'd hang out with these teens who frankly intimidated me because of my stutter. But we'd show the love of Christ. If my parents hadn't taken me along with them on their journey of outreach and love and care, would I have left Wales after failing at university to join a missionary ship aged 21? Would I have met my wife there? And would I have moved to Canada? And would I have started working here at Cornerstone as a youth pastor? If my parents hadn't taken me along, would Wendy and I have left North Gore? Would we have allowed our kids to live on a ship in Southeast Asia for four years if my parents hadn't taken me along with them as a kid? And so it's important that we reset forwards by living between the generations. We look back and we acknowledge the previous generation and we look forward and we bring the next generation along with us. You see, the life of faith is truly contagious. And the examples that we set, here is the thing that I want you to hear. The examples that we set, the example that you set is remembered. 
And it seems to me there was something about Terah and his example that freed Abraham to follow God's call and to bring the next generation along with him, to bring Lot with him. And I think it's also cool that it was Lot that went with Abraham. Why do I think it's cool? Because Lot wasn't Abraham's child. He was his nephew. And so for some of us who don't have biological children, Lot is proof that we can still bring the next generation along with us. So the first step of resetting forwards is to acknowledge the previous generation. The the second step of resetting forwards is to bring the next generation with you. In other words, live as a multi-generational Christian. You will be tempted if you're older to think, I've got nothing to give to the younger generations. That's an absolute lie. They need your stories. They need your example. They need you to not just visit, but to bring them along with you. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. He's speaking to his mentee, speaking to Timothy. And he says, I recall your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am convinced is in you also. And then the third step of resetting forwards is to go with God. Verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will curse or I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. And here we see something of the economy of God's blessing. We start to see how the, how the guts work, how the, how the inner workings of God's blessing works. Okay, he asks Abraham to go. He asks Abraham to do one thing. Sure, it's a big thing, but it's one thing. And then after God tells Abraham to go, then God avalanches Abraham with blessings and with promises. Right? Abraham just has one verb to think about. He's a guy, he can only think about one thing at a time. He's got one verb to think about, which is to go. And then God, after telling him this one verb, he says, I will make you, I will bless you, I will make your name, I will bless those, I will curse anyone. And then finally he says, and all of the people on earth will be blessed through you. Right? It's not equal. What God calls us to and what God promises us is not equal. Now, of course, we aren't all Abraham, right? Abraham was unique. We can't say, well, just as God called Abraham to leave and go somewhere else, so he's calling you to go and leave, right? That's not what the takeaway is, right? Abraham was the father of a nation from whom came all of the Semitic people, the Jews and the Arabs. And ultimately, Jesus came from Abraham. So we aren't Abraham. Jesus isn't going to come from us. But we are children of Abraham, which means that when we obey God with the faith of Abraham, and I've said this before, we unlock a future that we have no idea about. Abraham had no idea that when God said, through you all the peoples of the earth will be blessed, he had no idea that this referred to the future Messiah, to Jesus of Nazareth, to the one who is even now transforming lives. There are, there are literally billions of people who have been blessed because of Abraham. And, and many of them, or some of them, are, are here and many of you are them. And so there's this glorious imbalance between what God calls us to do and what he promises. 
He says, Abraham, go. Then he says, I will make, I will bless, I will make, I will bless, I will curse. Oh, and I'm going to bring salvation to the whole earth because of you. He says, I will do this if you do this. Now, as Wesleyans, we don't believe that God is the only actor in the universe. We don't believe that we're simply pawns that God moves around on the chessboard. There's this uh, Wesleyan professor, Ken Schenk, and he, he says this, Wesleyan Arminians and historic Christianity have more predominantly affirmed a synergism between God's actions and human response. Now, the word synergism has the same root as the word synergy two things working together right we we affirm this we affirm that god works with us that we have real choice and real options in front of us that if we choose not to do things that they might not get done that our choices have real life consequences if my parents had not intentionally invested and modeled risk taking and love for people not like me then i might not have settled in north gore because have a guess what you're not like me and I'm not like you you listen to country music you wear plaid shirts you wear cowboy boots you drive trucks but my parents example made room for a place like Canada in my heart and I see this in you as well as a church we have room in our heart for refugees whether they end up coming or not we have room in our heart for refugees We as a church have room in our heart for people in long-term care facilities. That we as a church have room for homeless wanderers, that we open our doors to them. We we as a church have room in our heart for doing uh, downtown homeless outreach. We as a church have room in our heart to give 15% of our giving to missionaries and to kingdom causes every year. And many of us are, are a part of that. You as a church sent me over to Cambodia last year. And all of this is going on. Lives are being changed. And it's not because we're pieces on a chessboard that God's moving around, but because God is calling and we're responding. So yeah, we're synergists. But listen to the rest of this quotation from Ken Schenk. First of all, he says this, Wesleyan Arminians and historic Christianity have more predominantly affirmed a synergism between God's action and human response. Good, we've covered this, but then Ken carries on. He says the work is vastly disproportionate with God's work, the overwhelmingly predominant element. This means that we're not equal partners. It's like God is the dad who's splitting wood and we are the little child who's carrying kindling and twigs to the wood pile. We're we're really not helping that much at all. But God loves it because God has a father's heart. And so he says to Abraham, go. And then God promises this outrageously oversized package of God's side of the bargain. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Five times in these two verses, then God says the word bless. So six I wills and five blessings in response or in exchange for Abraham going. And then three glorious words that literally unlock the beginning of salvation history for each and every one of us that created um, a place of God and a people of God and a plan of salvation from God. Three glorious words in verse four. It says, so Abraham went. So Abraham went acknowledging the previous generation and Terah's example. And he went, as the Lord told him, he went with God and he took Lot with him, meaning he brought the next generation along with him. 
And this really sums up what it means for us to reset forwards. Now we hear a lot about midlife crises, like life, like reaching a certain age somehow gives us the permission to do crazy stuff. You know, to buy the toy we always wanted, or the second home, or the new tattoo, or to trade in our spouse for a younger model, or to experiment with cross-dressing, whatever it is, midlife crises. But, you know, the Bible doesn't talk about a midlife crisis. That's a made-up term that really gives us the permission to do stupid stuff. But what the Bible does do is it gives us example after example of people who allowed God to reset them forwards, to hold the power button on what went before and to start again just like Abraham and Sarai, just like Ruth, just like Paul, just like Peter, just like Mary Magdalene. And this, and this, and this, this way of, 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 of God operating culminated in a 75-year-old established successful man, Abraham, going with God, acknowledging his debt to the previous generation and bringing the next generation along with him. And he unlocked a life full of God's promises and God's blessings. So what does this mean for you? How can you do an Abraham-style reset? What does it look for you to reset forwards? First, acknowledge the previous generation. Maybe take a piece of paper and write down the example that you've received from the previous generation. Maybe it's your parents or your grandparents or your uncles and your aunties. Think about experiences that you've had as a child. Maybe you've not thought about it for years, but as you pray and you listen to God, he brings it to you, the sights and the smells and the tastes and the experiences. This, these experiences that revealed the heart of the people that poured into you. Think about how this has formed you as a person and think about maybe this is why you do what you do. Now, perhaps you're adopted or, or you've been in the system or your parents weren't the best examples. Maybe you've actually set your life on a trajectory of life in direct opposition to the example that you received. That's okay as well. In that case, think about adults or influences in your life that were positive, that did leave a mark, that somehow molded you into the person that you are. Maybe it's a teacher, maybe it's a social worker or a counsellor or a grandparent or a pastor or a youth pastor or an older sibling. However this works, take a piece of paper and write down these memories as God brings them to your mind. Acknowledge the previous generation. And maybe thank them. In this sermon, um, I've thanked my parents. And I hope that they hear this message. And I know in the past that I've told them how their influence in my life has helped me make me the man I am today. Next thing, if we're going to live this out, is think about how you can bring the next generation with you, your lot, as it were. What do I mean by this? Well, if you have the chance to do something good for someone, maybe it's a home visit or offering to renovate a needy friend's kitchen, or volunteering at the food bank, or making food for a youth camp, or going to a prayer meeting, then don't do it alone. Bring someone along with you. Bring your child, or your grandchild, or your nephew, or your niece, or your neighbor, or a kid from church, as long as the parent gives you the permission. Don't just grab random kids and bring them with you. That's a bad example, and there will be consequences. <laughs> but let them see you go with God. 
Let them experience this. Let this memory sink in. Let this become part of their story. They may not understand it now. And you might think, oh, it'd be so much quicker if I, just, if I could just go by myself, pop in and leave. But remember, those who go far, they go together. And, and this child may not understand it now. It may seem weird to them. It may seem rather boring even. I wasn't thrilled everywhere that my parents took me. But take them anyways. So we knocked on the door of Mr. and Mr. Mrs. Elliston's house in Cates in Cardiff. And we went in, my mum and my dad and my brother Chris, my sister Jem and me. And we were struck by the musty smell of the place. It's a smell I can still recall. Now I had no idea at this time, but Mr. and Mrs. Elliston were poor. They didn't have much. Their house was rudimentary, but I remember sitting down on their out-of-style sofa, and I think that they brought that my sister, my sister and my brothers, some tea, and my mum and my dad talked with them. I don't remember anything that was said, but I remember the smell, and I remember the darkness and the dinginess of the house, and I remember Mr. Elliston's false eye that never looked in the same direction as the other. We then moved out of town from Cardiff to Neath, and I forgot about Mr. and Mrs. Elliston. Years later, I went back to university back in Cardiff, and I lived on Montham Road for two years in a Victorian terraced house. And we had a small grocery store just around the corner, a short walk. It was a co-op, which is uh, you know, a chain in the UK. And I'd go there for my cheap baked beans and my sausages and my cheap bread that I lived on while I was a student. And the first time I went to the grocery store, I passed a house. And I remember looking at this house and thinking, that's where Mr. and Mr. Mrs. Allison used to live. And all these memories from years back came flooding back into my house. The smell, the tea, the dinginess the mustiness, and the glass eye. And it brought a smile to my face. 